I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Welcome new friends, welcome old, welcome back. What are you doing here? Nobody knows. Uh, Taylor has had caffeine for the first time in days. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm going. Yeah. And we've spent the morning looking at maps, so we're both very excited and happy. Yes. It's, the maps have nothing to do with this episode. No, you know. not, nothing whatsoever. Yes, yeah, so this week is the final episode in our Cults Month series for June. And yeah, we're doing things like a little bit differently today. Today's case is actually one that most of us have probably heard of before. And... We've probably heard it as the story of a serial killer who terrorized New York City for a year and two days from July 29th, 1976 to July 31st, 1977. The case has long been closed officially, but there's always been speculation that this serial killer didn't work alone. And now a Netflix documentary has put another theory front and center. The idea that this killer not only had accomplices, he had a whole cult behind him. That's right. Today we are talking about David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam killer, and the Sons of Sam cult theory. So let's go. David Berkowitz was born Richard David Falco in Brooklyn on June 1st, 1953, and was given up for adoption just a few days after his birth. He was adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, a middle-aged couple who lived in the Bronx and had no children of their own. They changed his name to David Richard Berkowitz. He was described as an intelligent child but lost interest in education and fell into petty crime pretty quickly. He became fascinated with arson at a young age and his adop adoptive parents consulted at least one psychiatrist about his behaviour but there was never any legal or medical intervention nor was his behaviour noted in his school records. His adopted mother died of breast cancer when he was 14, and Berkowitz continued to live with his adopted father, but he struggled to get on with his father's second wife. Uh, he moved out of the family home in 1971 when he was 17 and joined the US Army, serving at both Fort Knox and in South Korea, before he was honourably discharged in 1974. So during his time in Korea, he had sex with a sex worker and supposedly contracted a venereal disease and this was his only known sexual relationship and has been used as you know one of the reasons to blame all of his crimes on women that his mother putting up for adoption his adopted mother dying his stepmother you know it's all women's fault sure uh, after leaving the army berkowitz tracked down his biological mother betty but their communication was sporadic and eventually they lost touch but he did manage to maintain contact with a half-sister he held on a series of jobs throughout the mid-1970s including taxi driver and letter sorter for the post office hmm. by late 1975 berkowitz was becoming increasingly reclusive and paranoid only leaving the house to purchase food and other necessities According to a crime investigation article, he would later tell psychiatrists that this was when he started hearing voices telling him to kill. And on Christmas Eve 1975, he committed his first violent attacks at the age of just 22. 
Uh, Berkowitz took a large hunting knife out with him and prowled the streets of Co-op City in the Bronx looking for young female victims. He attacked two 15-year-old girls. Uh, one was a Hispanic girl who's never been identified by the police, and the second was a sophomore at a local high school named Michelle. He attacked Michelle on a bridge, and her injuries were so severe she spent seven days in the hospital. Uh, but m miraculously, both women survived. Berkowitz was not a suspect in these stabbings, but shortly after the attacks, he moved about 20 minutes north of Co-op City to Yonkers, which, interestingly, is outside of New York City limits. Uh, Berkowitz laid low for seven months, but in the early hours of July 29, 1976, he committed his first murder. 18-year-old EMT Donna Loria was sitting in her friend 19-year-old Jody Valenti's car outside her home in the Pelham Bay area of the Bronx. She was about to exit the car to go home when she saw a man hurrying towards the car. He crouched down, pulled a pistol from a paper bag, and shot Donna, killing her instantly. Jody was shot once in the thigh but survived, and a third bullet missed both of them. The man then hurried away. Jody described the man as being around five foot eight, two hundred pounds, with short, dark, curly hair, which sounds a lot like David Berkowitz. Mm -hmm. uh, Donna's father and some neighbors described seeing a man who matched Jody's description cruising around the area in an unfamiliar small yellow car. Can we just talk about like? I feel like in the 70s, all of these serial killers had the most, like, crazily colored cars. Ted Bundy drove a gold VW Bug. Like, this is a yellow, it, it's like a Ford or something. A Ford Galaxy. Yeah, like... Which is very different to what Ford Galaxies look like now. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not very, like, massive people carriers. Yeah, no, they're super different um yeah like i just feel like you don't you can't get away with a yellow car much these days can you i mean but in new york taxis are yellow true i forgot about that. <laughs> you lived in new york i sure did for what like four years five years nearly five I wasn't, I was, I only took taxis when they were paid for by either my nanny clients or other people. <laughs> <laughs> or I had to go to the airport. Uh, the second shooting took place on October 23rd, 1976, in the neighborhood of Flushing in Queens, when 20 year old security guard Carl Denaro. An 18-year-old student, Rosemary Keenan, was sitting in Carl's car when the windows suddenly shattered. Carl started the car and sped away to get help, supposedly without realising that he had been shot in the head. Which that is crazy. Wild. But you hear of that happening, don't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Well, because, like, technically your brain doesn't have nerve endings, right? Mm, I have no idea. But, like, yeah, I was... Uh, I think there's a point in the... Is either in the documentary or I, I looked up a few other videos this morning, but it's like, yeah, I didn't feel anything. It, it, and the bullet like went in his left eye and then traveled behind his mm -hmm. right eye or something. And he didn't feel it at all. 
I remember years ago seeing on TV, there was this guy who had tripped up, was in the kitchen, had a, like a big knife in his hand, like a ca- like carving knife or bread knife or something, like big knife. Yeah. Tripped up, fell, banged his head, woke up like a few minutes later, didn't know what happened, but like the, like the blade was missing from the knife and he's like, he assumed it had broken off and like slid under one of the like kitchen appliances. Uh-huh. Then he started getting really bad migraines and went to the doctors a couple of weeks later and they did an x-ray. The blade was in, in his skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had no idea. He couldn't feel it or anything. And there was no, like, entry wound either. That's but, fucking crazy. So, yeah, the brain, it, insane in the brain. <laughs> very, very strange things can ha- definitely happen with head injuries. It's mm. It's kind of crazy. Uh, Carl had to have a metal plate fitted to sort of replace where bits of the skull were so damaged. And luckily, Rosemary survived. She only had like superficial injuries, so she was fine. Mm. Um, Neither of them saw the shooter. And this shooting was not initially connected to the shooting of Donna and Jody a few months earlier in July. There were a number of similarities, such as, you know, lack of motive, victims sitting in a car talking. Although I feel like in a car, even like a lover's lane, just two people in a car was like a staple of a serial killer in in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Zodiac. Texarkana Phantom. Yeah, it is. It's It's a classic. They were being investigated in different boroughs by different precincts, and the link just wasn't made. Five weeks later, on November 27th, there was a third shooting, this time in the town of Floral Park on Long Island. Sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. I bet it's a disgusting place. <laughs> um, Berkowitz approached 16-year-old Donna Damasi and 18-year-old Joanne Lamino as they stood talking outside one of their homes. I'm not sure which, but they were on like somebody's porch. Mm. And this is the first time that Berkowitz spoke to any of his victims. He asked the girls for directions, but before they had time to reply, he shot them in the neck and the back. Both girls survived, miraculously, but Joanne was left with severe mobility problems and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Now, a neighbour also saw the shooter, but described him as having blonde hair. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. On January 30th, 1977, 26-year-old Christine Freund and her fiancé John Deal, age 30, were sitting in John's car in the Forest Hill area of Queens. Uh, They'd been to the cinema and were about to head out to a dance hall when three shots rang out. John was able to drive away and suffered only minor injuries, but two of the shots had hit Christine and she later died in the hospital. Neither John nor Christine had seen their attacker, but the police connected this attack with the previous shootings and publicly acknowledged that the shootings might have been connected. Police released the composite sketches from the first shooting, the man with the short, dark, curly hair, and from the shooting on Long Island, the blonde man, and announced that they were hunting for multiple shooters. As well as a 44 caliber gun having been used in all the shootings, police noted that the shooter seemed to be targeting young women with long, dark hair, which caused panic across New York. Women began cutting their hair short and dyeing it blonde in the hopes of avoiding the shooter. And, of course, 
as is wont to happen in situations like this, sales of handguns went through the roof. Yeah, this is a bit similar to um, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Yes, in, yeah. In um, LA. Yep. Is it LA? Yeah, yeah. LA. Like, when he was active in LA, like, sales of, of handguns went up. Massively. Massively. People were taking, like, self-defense classes, everything like that, because there was no discernible pattern yeah that's there's no like rhyme or reason to the attacks and you couldn't just Mm -hmm. you know not go to one part of town and and you'd be safe it was literally just random Mm. people especially women in uh new york were absolutely terrified many would avoid going uh for nights out or going out at all at night if they could help it uh they didn't feel safe walking around at night but also didn't feel safe traveling or waiting in cars, understandably. Because most of the shootings had taken place in Queens, uh, with one in the Bronx and another on Long Island, young people began avoiding the borough of Queens, instead heading to Brooklyn for social activities. On March 8th, 19-year-old student Virginia Voskarichian was walking through Queens on her way home around 7.30 when she was confronted by an armed man. She tried to defend herself by putting her textbooks up in front of her face, but that sadly did little to protect her and she died from a gunshot wound to the head. Following her murder, police announced at a press conference that the same 44 calibre gun had been used to shoot Virginia and the first victim, Donna. And this was when the media started to really take an interest in the shootings, which put residents even more on edge. And the attacks were headline news for weeks, and not just in New York, it's like across the country, yeah. it's all over the world at one point as well. Yeah. In the early hours of April 17th, 1977, 20-year-old tow truck operator Alexander Isao and his girlfriend, 18-year-old student and aspiring actress Valentina Suriani were sitting in a car at a lover's lane in the Bronx. And this was just a few blocks away from where Donna and Jody had been shot in Pelham Bay the previous July. A neighbour heard four shots ring out and called the police, who found the couple in the car. Valentina had died at the scene after being shot twice, and Alexander died hours later in hospital without having been able to regain consciousness and describe the shooter. Police once again concluded that the gun was the same as used in the previous shootings, but there was something about this one that was different. One of the most famous aspects of these murders and shootings are the letters that Berkowitz wrote to the police and the media, and the shooting murders of Valentina and Alexander marked the first letter that he left for police. Berkowitz used the letter to taunt police about their inability to identify and apprehend him, and he identified himself as the son of Sam, which the media then ran with. Yes, up until this point, I think they called him the 44 caliber killer. Yes, yeah. And like, if you watch the um, documentary that we're going to talk about in a minute, um, uh, like all that early coverage is all the 44 caliber killer. Yeah. He also referred to himself as, quote, Beelzebub the chubby behemoth, end quote, which I uh, love. I love that. And like, I, I would like 
to henceforth be described as such? I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to be known as Beelzebub because no, but <laughs> chubby behemoth. Yeah. I'm totally down for that. Like, yes, it, like it sounds cuddly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it doesn't sound sinister. Well, I mean, Beelzebub is sinister, but yeah. no, chubby behemoth just sounds like you're a big cuddly teddy bear person. Yeah, exactly. It sounds sounds great. So Beelzebub is described as a major demon in the Abrahamic religions. The letters are analyzed by experts and armchair detectives alike, with psychiatrists concluding that the killer likely suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. On May 30th, Berkowitz sent another letter, this time to Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin. And both of these letters are uh, actually on Berkowitz's Wikipedia page if you want to read them in full. Among the ramblings in the second letter, Berkowitz makes threats about the anniversary of the first shooting on July 29th. Many questions were raised over the second letter as the wording was much different uh, to the first. Breslin passed it on to the police, who suspected it may have been written by someone else who had knowledge of the shootings. On June 26th, uh, 17-year-old Judy Placido and 20-year-old Sal Lupo were sitting in Sal's car in the Bayside area of Queens at 3am, having just left a discotheque. That word has fallen out of fashion and I love it. It's a shame. Yeah, discotheque sounds so much cooler than nightclub. I agree. Uh, Judy was shot in the temple, neck and shoulder, and Sal was shot through his arm, but both of them survived. Wow. I mean, they were made of some strong stuff. <laughs> the amount of people getting shot in the head and surviving. I know. It's it's like a Skidmore. Like, everyone gets shot oh, yeah. by shotgun blasts and they're all just still walking around totally fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is New York, yeah. like... I'd expect some people to get shot in the head and walk away from it. <laughs> Is that that gritty? Yeah, especially in the 70s. Just like, fuck you, I'm surviving. Yeah, I mean, that was New York in the 70s, though, wasn't it? It was. New York was rough in the 70s. It, it was still run by the mob. Yeah, it was. it was not a good place to be. <laughs> So neither of them saw the shooter, but witnesses did, and they described a man, a tall man with dark hair, and one of the witnesses saw him get into a car and was able to supply a partial license plate. As the end of July rolled around, and with it the anniversary of the first Son of Sam shooting, or 44 caliber shooting, police began stepping up their patrols in the Bronx and Queens, hoping to catch the killer after his, you know, thinly veiled threats made in the letter he sent to Jimmy Breslin. But that didn't make a difference because the final Son of Sam killing took place in Bath Beach, Brooklyn. On July 31st, 1977, Stacey Moskowitz and Robert Violente, both aged 20, were sitting in Robert's car in Bath Beach. It was their first date. They were making out, you know, little lovers laying in Brooklyn, why not? Uh, when a man shot four bullets into the car. Stacy was killed and she was the only blonde victim of Berkowitz. Mm. Which is interesting because so many women had been dyeing their hair blonde. Yeah. Uh, Robert survived but lost the sight in his left eye. And really sadly, Robert's parents had begged him not to go out in Queens because they were worried he could become another victim. So he agreed to go out in Brooklyn instead. Uh, 
But again, that just shows you it's like not even safe there. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of like when like my mum's generation and like my aunties talk about the Yorkshire Ripper. Mm-hmm. So when the Yorkshire Ripper was around, my mum would have been around 20. Mm-hmm. And so my aunties would be near 30. But, you know, there was just absolute terror yeah. all around Yorkshire, even though we're from North Yorkshire, which is, it's like two to three hours to get to like Leeds or Bradford or like where the murders were taking place. But there was still like a constant fear yeah. of going out on your own, even further up north, like in North Yorkshire. Yeah. No, it's just, it uh, sows this sort of consistent feeling of, like not being safe of unrest of un mm. uncertainty uh 10 days after the final shooting the police finally caught up with berkowitz they had received a tip from a witness who had seen a man with a gun fleeing bath beach in a car which had a parking ticket on it one of the cars ticketed in bath beach that night was a yellow ford belonging to david berkowitz they then cross-referenced this with a report from a man named Sam Carr in Yonkers who had been receiving letters about his dog. Soon after getting the letters, his dog was shot, and he believed his neighbor had shot his dog. And his neighbor was David Berkowitz. On August 10th, 1977, police arrested David Berkowitz outside his apartment building. He reportedly told the arresting officer that he was the son of Sam, and he went without a struggle or, or any kind of fuss. He confessed the following day, and that was when he made his claims that he was being given instructions to kill by a black Labrador, which belonged to his neighbor, Sam Carr, hence the son of Sam. The dog, according to Berkowitz, was possessed by an ancient demon and compelled him to carry out the murders. Three separate psychiatric professionals assessed Berkowitz because there was clearly a lot of concern about his mental health. The let, from the letters alone, there was suspicion of paranoid schizophrenia. And, you know, given that he was claiming a dog compelled him to kill. Yeah. There's a lot of red flags there. Yeah, yeah. But he was found fit to stand trial. The one thing I don't think is talked about enough is the difference between being legally insane and mental health problems. Oh, yeah. Because being fit to stand trial does not mean that you don't have severe mental health problems. It means that you are mentally competent enough to understand the trial proceedings and understand the, the charges against you yeah it's it's something in the u.s it's like you have to be competent competent enough to assist in your own defense yeah which is like kind of a low bar at the trial in may 1978 berkowitz was advised by his legal counsel to plead not guilty by reason of insanity but he refused and instead pleaded guilty to all of the shootings. So that was six murders and seven woundings. On June 12th, 1978, at the age of 25 years and 11 days, David Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 to life. Um, so Berkowitz was eligible for parole after 25 years. And then every two years after that, he's um, since 2000 and two that was when he was first eligible for parole so every two years after that he's subject to a parole hearing by law but he has declined to ask for release and sometimes even just declined to even turn up to the hearings yeah. so he's now 68 years old and remains incarcerated in a new york state prison 
But that, of course, is not the end of the story. From the very beginning, there were many conflicting theories and arguments about whether or not Berkowitz acted alone. Many point to the vastly differing descriptions of the shooter as evidence of this. You know, some describe the shooter as a man with dark hair, others saw a man with blonde hair. But, you know, we know and we've talked about before, witnesses can be mistaken, especially in the dark, late at night, and, you know, especially either having been attacked or shot themselves or seeing a traumatic event like someone being shot or attacked. Yeah. Uh, and also, at night, in the right light, if you're a brunette, you can look blonde if you oh, have yeah. the right light shone on you in the dark. Yeah, like in streetlights. There's there's certain bulbs in the streetlights here in, in some places that make colors go really weird like we have a red car mm -hmm. but under these street lights it looks gray so like i could totally see how at the right angle things look different in the dark and your eyes do play tricks on you that's not to say that yeah. the witness didn't see a blonde man no they may have done but witness descriptions eyewitness descriptions can be very easily misled mistaken yeah. Misinterpreted. And also, like, memory doesn't work the same way that I think we often think it does. Like, mm. your memories are not a photograph. They're, like, no. a, a series of feelings and perceptions, and your brain assembles them into a picture, but sometimes they are not assembled in the correct order in the correct way. Like, yeah. So the differences in the, the witness statements and the, the sketches uh, were some of the initial sort of conflicting theories. Uh, some believed that it wasn't just two or sort of a small group of shooters, potentially, but instead uh, they believed that it was actually a satanic cult and that Berkowitz was the one who got caught and therefore took the fall for the rest of the cult. Uh, and there was no bigger supporter and investigator of this theory than investigative journalist Maury Terry. And it is his story that's told in the new Netflix documentary, Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. So let's go ahead and look at the arguments for David Berkowitz potentially being part of a cult. So according to Maury Terry, in 1979, so the year after he was convicted, Berkowitz mailed a book about the occult to police in a small town in North Dakota. In the book, Berkowitz made reference to a woman named Alice Perry, who grew up in the Bismarck area and was murdered in 1974 at the age of 19. This was shortly after she moved to Stanford, California with her husband who was attending Stanford University. So in the book and a number of subsequent letters, Berkowitz alluded to knowing who the killer was but he was interviewed multiple times over the years by cold case investigators in California and um, or from California and North Dakota. I don't think he was flown out to California. <laughs> Probably not. But he was investigated by multiple law enforcement agencies, and ultimately they concluded that he had nothing of value to add to the investigation. 
Alice Perry's murder was officially solved in 2018, after 44 years. Um, the killer had no known links to Berkowitz or a satanic cult in New York State. And the murder, murderer shot himself as the police tried to take him into custody. But DNA had confirmed that he was Alice's murderer. Obviously, that technology wasn't available in 1974. Yeah. He was the man that Maury Terry had theorised Berkowitz was referring to in his letters about Alice. Yeah, he was the security guard at the church where she was killed, I believe. Yeah. Now, we should say before we go much further here that there was a lot of opposition to Maury Terry's theory about a cult and multiple shooters or accomplices. The NYPD were obviously opposed to this theory because, as far as they were concerned, they had closed the case, and many of the investigators had made a name for themselves with this very high-profile case. And because of that, obviously, nobody wanted to, to up and admit and, and be embarrassed in front of international media saying, hey, we got something wrong, and also there's still other murderers out there. Yeah. That would suck for them. <laughs> Nobody wants to make that climb down. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Breslin, who's the columnist who received a letter from Berkowitz, also rejected Maury Terry's claim due to the fact that Berkowitz was able to perfectly recall all of the shootings, uh, supposedly only as the killer could have done. However, that didn't stop Maury Terry from devoting the rest of his life to uncovering the cult who he alleged helped Berkowitz to the point of total obsession right up until he was on his literal actual deathbed in December 2015. Uh, he even published a book in 1988. Is it called? The uh, Ultimate Evil. Yeah, The Ultimate Evil. Uh, and then released a second edition in 1997. Uh, he worked the TV circuit for years trying to convince the general public of his theory, but this ultimately did more to discredit him than help him uh, because TV shows use it to boost ratings and stoke fear rather than to further the investigation in any way. Uh, his research was enough to get the case reopened, but even his own friends, family, and colleagues who appear in the Netflix documentary say that Maury was obsessed and possessed by his own theory, and it got to the point where he couldn't see the forest for the trees. Uh, Maury Terry made links between Berkowitz and his neighbor's sons, John and Michael Carr. The three were known to, ha to hang around in Untermeyer Park in Yonkers. And although the gardens have now been cleaned up and restored to their former glory in the 70s, they were fairly derelict. And there was an abandoned well pump, which had become overgrown and was known locally as Devil's Cave. Maury and some other journalists visited the park and found Devil's Cave. Inside it, the walls were supposedly covered in satanic graffiti and blood. And decomposing bodies of three dogs were also found nearby, which Maury and others concluded uh, had been used for ritual animal sacrifices. As we mentioned before, New York in the 70s was a violent and lawless place. Yeah. Sadly, finding mutilated, mutilated animals wasn't unusual. Same as shootings weren't unusual. Yes. <laughs> and also, so this building, this abandoned building was covered in graffiti and blood and everything. So any abandoned building that's, I was going to say that's structurally sound, even the ones that aren't, if you have a large 
homeless population like there was in New York mm. in the 70s because of the economic crises, yeah. you are going to get people living in those abandoned buildings. You're also going to have um, drug users. Oh, yeah. And people with addiction problems using them. So you're going to end up with blood all around because that's what happens when people shoot up. And anywhere where there are teenagers who are bored with nothing to do, you will get graffiti. And New York uh, in the 70s, from like the 70s to the 90s, was absolutely covered in graffiti. Like, there, there's there's anecdotes where like you would clean the graffiti off of one subway car and on its first trip out and then back into the depot, it would be completely covered again. So it, it was not uncommon to find graffiti around the city. Um, so yeah, there was not only this. John and Michael's father was Sam Carr, the same Sam Carr who thought Berkowitz had shot his dog. So John and Michael were literally the sons of Sam. <laughs> and the family's black Labrador was the one who Berkowitz believed was possessed by an ancient demon and was commanding him to kill. Not only this, uh, so John Carr supposedly resembled one of the composite sketches pulled out, uh, put out by the NYPD. And his nickname was Wheaties, and Berkowitz mentioned someone called Wheaties in one of his letters. So Sam Carr and his sons had links to Scientology and an offshoot known as The Process. The Process has always denied any links to Berkowitz and the shootings in New York, but of course they would, right? <laughs> um, Charles Manson has also been linked to The Process, although the church sued the author who made these claims and they were then retracted. Uh, Maury Terry believed that the Carrs and Berkowitz belonged to a cult called The Children, and according to an article by The Guardian, he claimed that this cult had links not only to Manson and his family, but also a network of other satanic cults and pedophilic cabals across the USA, which uh, was being ignored by the mainstream media. Now, that same Guardian article goes on to point out how similar these claims are to those made by QAnon and previous iterations of that conspiracy theory, such as Pizzagate, uh, and shows just how obsessed Maury Terry became with this case. And uh, Netflix documentary director Joshua Zeman warns of Maury as a cautionary tale of how obsessed people can get with mysteries and true crime in general, uh, and falling down rabbit, rabbit holes that they can't get themselves back out of. Um, but yeah, there's a point in the documentary, and I think it's actually one of Terry's, like, friends and, like, uh, people who helped him investigate the the case. And he was like, yeah, you know, like, I believed Maury up to a point, but mm. then he started connecting things kind of at random, and it... it like and things that just weren't there yeah yeah and like oh uh, there was a point he's like he was making connections that just because this person was involved in the case and this person was involved in the case they must have known each other and stuff like that and i mean it's it's kind of like correlation doesn't equal causation yeah 
And um, and they do describe it as almost like a descent into madness. So like he became a two-fisted drinker. Yes. He was smoking two packs a day. His marriage disintegrated. Yeah. His health declined. Um, yeah, I mean, he died quite young. Yeah. I think only in his early 60s. He lost a lot of friends over the years because it was all-consuming. It was just too much, yeah. Um, but with all that said, Maury Terry did get some help in the 1990s from an unusual source, uh, David Berkowitz himself. In 1993, Berkowitz changed his story, and in an interview with Maury Terry, he claimed that he was not responsible for all of the murders that he had pleaded guilty to, and subsequently been convicted of. He alleged that he had only killed Donna Laurie, uh, Valentina Suriani, and Alexander Esau, which were the first and sixth attacks, uh, both of which took place in the Bronx. Berkowitz claimed that he was part of a cult and the other members had organised and carried out the other killings. He said he couldn't name the other cult members because of threats of violence against his family, although he did eventually name three people. All members of the same family. John and Michael Carr were, you know, the sons of the other man who was named Sam Carr. And Maury Terry had previously linked all these names to the case. Yeah. There's a lot of criticism of that interview because it's very, I haven't watched it all, I've only seen the clips. It's very, supposedly very leading and it's basically Berkowitz telling Maury Terry what he wants to hear. So is this the Inside Edition I think interview? so, yes. So I watched, uh, they have a YouTube video of part of that up on their YouTube channel. So I watched some of it this morning, but it was not the part about uh, like him saying, oh, that wasn't me. But yeah, it's very, yeah. it's very much like they shouldn't have had Terry doing the questioning, I think. Yeah. Like I said, I, I haven't watched, I've only seen the clips that are in the Son of Sam yeah. or Sons of Sam documentary. Um, but from what I've read about it, it's it's almost like confirmation bias. And Maury Terry had been trying to get um, Erkowitz to speak with him in person for over 10 years at this point. Yeah. And one of the other producers of that show even speaks about that in the documentary. She's like, we agreed to let Maury produce it. But then you can tell as she's describing the events that she kind of realized halfway through that, like, oh, that was probably a mistake. Yeah. And then Berkowitz changed his story again. Multiple times, actually. Right up until this last year. I can't remember what version he's on now. <laughs> but he's gone back and forward between there being a cult, there being an accomplice. Because there's a big leap between accomplices and a full-blown cult. Yeah. Or him being the lone shooter and all this kind of stuff. And both of, or all three of the cars, so Sam Carr has since died, and John and Michael Carr both died in the late 70s in very tragic accidents. Yeah. Oh, sorry, one of them died in a car crash, and the other is believed to have ended his own life, I think. Yeah, they talk about it in the the series which is yeah. another reason that terry believed that they were 
involved because they had these seemingly suspicious or possibly suspicious deaths at a young age. Yes, so those three, the only three named members of this supposed cult have all died, so we will likely never know the truth. Yeah. Among the skeptics of this cult theory is the father of criminal profiling, John E. Douglas, who has dismissed Maury Terry's claims of Berkowitz working with a cult. Uh, Douglas claimed that Berkowitz was, uh, quote, an introverted loner not capable of being involved in group activity. Uh, NYPD psychologist Dr. Harvey Schlossberg also dismissed the claims of a cult, saying that it and the alleged accomplices are a way for Berkowitz to absolve himself of his crimes. The case has been closed once again, and the narrative that Berkowitz acted alone seems to remain the most popular, although more and more people are exploring the cult angle now that this Netflix documentary has been released. Berkowitz converted to evangelical Christianity after a fellow inmate gifted him a Bible, and he asks to be referred to as the son of Hope, not son of Sam. Nope, not (laughs) happening. Uh, He's written books and articles about the power of faith, uh, although because of the son of Sam law in New York State, he does not receive any royalties from these publications. So due to speculation that publishers were willing to pay vast sums of money to Berkowitz for the rights to his story, New York State quickly brought in a law which prevented convicted criminals and their family members from profiting off of their crimes. It has since been enacted in 41 states and in many countries across the world and in sort of English English language. Now, Son of Sam law is a colloquialism for any law that prohibits prohibits the profiteering off of your crimes which is probably a good thing yeah definitely yeah. because you shouldn't be able to profit off your crimes like that no and that is the case of david berkowitz and the sons of sam cult theory there's a lot so the netflix documentary is four episodes right yeah so it's like four hours long the first mm. bit is mostly a recap of like the crimes yeah and the timeline of like the investigation and then it dives into all the theories and stuff like i have to say i was kind of lost for the first like half of the series and not really seeing all the connections and it's kind of like eh, i don't know mm. and then in like episodes three and like the beginning of four, I was like, okay, I kind of see how Terry made some of these connections and some of these like leaps of logic kind of thing. But there's a lot to like mentally sift through in there. Yeah, like you say, it is a lot. And... I am always skeptical going into these kind of documentaries. Yeah. Because, and I know we are always skeptical and critical of the police, because that is our right as taxpaying citizens. In this case, I think there may have been other shooters. I don't think there was a, you know, national cult. No. Personally, I think that 
Maury Terry is this cautionary tale for becoming obsessed with, with true crime. Yeah. Because his theories may have been correct about there being accomplices, but it got to the point that he got so f- just so lost in this this rabbit's warren of conspiracy theories and links and connections that just weren't there. Yeah. That he just never came back out of that. Yeah. Well, and like and I and I totally understand how that happened. Like he's mm-hmm. basically devoted his entire career from being a fairly young adult to, mm-hmm. you know, literally his dying breaths and like and he didn't really get there's a there's a moment that in where one of his friends says like Maury didn't get the support he needed for these theories. And I almost feel like if someone had said to him in official uh, standings, like uh, in the police or in the legal system in New York, if someone had said to him like, you may be right. There may have been other shooters. There may have been other accomplices, but we can't prove it or we can't, we don't have the time or the money Mm -hmm. or the energy to investigate it the way that you're suggesting. I feel like if someone had said that instead of just being like, you're crazy, then maybe he would have left it and gone on to do something else. But because of that, he just kind of got sucked into it. Yeah. And um, so there's a Refinery29 article, which is linked in the episode description. And the headline is, was, was Maury Terry right about Sons of Sam? And the first paragraph says, The new true crime docuseries, which takes a closer look at the infamous Son of Sam serial killer case, isn't really about the Son of Sam killer David Berkowitz at all. Instead, it's about Maury Terry, the man who spent his whole life trying to prove that Berkowitz wasn't the only son of Sam. While you may not walk away convinced of his theory, Sons of Sam succeeds in showing the real cost of true crime obsession. And I think that's... Well, that's the truth, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, I didn't come away convinced that there was a satanic cult that committed these crimes or, like coerced Berkowitz into committing these crimes. I'm Mm. more open-minded to the idea that perhaps he committed these crimes with a handful of other people and that he may not have pulled the trigger at each event. Like he, in one of his interviews, he says, Oh, I was there at all of the shootings, Mm. but like oh i didn't kill this person i didn't shoot this person i didn't whatever so like i could see that being true and those people are now dead or you know there's you know he's not gonna oldest trick in the world pin it on the dead guy yeah berkowitz himself is kind of an interesting person to me in the way that he's like you, you think about his crimes and the way he's been depicted in the media in this phase in the seventies and stuff, and then the like, you look at more recent interviews and he just ultimately it kind of seems like he was a guy 
with a lot of really bad mental health problems that were not being addressed. And ultimately, that's what led him to commit some really terrible crimes. And now that he's been in the prison system for 50 years, basically, you know, he's, he's found God, he works as a prison minister, like, just, and he seems like, yeah, I did those things. I wasn't Mm -hmm. right in the head when I did them, but I did them. Which I think is really different than a lot of this this sort of era of serial killers that we we've seen. Yeah, he's it doesn't seem like the sociopath type of serial killer. No, because and that's kind of how Mari Terry's theory uh, describes him as you know this very highly intelligent, complex psychopath who was able to present as a very introverted loner, but very then very secretly was part of this very extensive cult and had many friends and associates. Yeah. And I don't think that's who he is. No, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like it. I am very skeptical when people find religion in prison, which I know is awful of me, but when they find religion and suddenly they are absolved of their sins, I am very sceptical. When they find religion and consistently work to make reparations, to better themselves, things like that, less sceptical. But when it becomes about, I'm, you know, now absolved of all my sins and you're being held up by the evangelical community as, you know, the power of faith, that's when I get very sceptical. Yeah, see, like, I I think it's super common for people to find religion in prison because it's like... Oh, yeah. It's one of the things that there is to do there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it's also one, one way to, like, enmesh yourself with a group that's within yeah. the prison. But, yeah, like, the thing that gets me about him, I think, is that he's not asking for parole. He's not saying, I found Jesus, yeah. and so you should let me out because actually I'm okay mm-hmm. now. Like, I, I, I'm good. He's just like, yeah, I did it. I'm here. Yeah, that, that is interesting because that does set him apart from a lot. Yeah. Um, but I'm still very skeptical, and that probably means I'm a bad person, but you know. I mean, I'm skeptical of religion in all forms, in all areas, in all people, but... Yeah. And many people would say that makes me a bad person, <laughs> but I don't give a shit. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it is interesting that he has never asked for parole. Yeah. Uh, so, cult, yay or nay? Nay. Yeah, nay. This is our first no. Yeah. Um, and what a way to end cults month. Yeah. I I think it feeds into the bigger satanic panic of the 70s and 80s. I agree, which has been debunked in so many ways and shapes and forms at this point that like yeah. it's not it just doesn't hold water. No. Um yeah, like like we said, I think that 
there very well could have been accomplices or other shooters or even just like people who maybe knew about uh, his crimes as they were happening. Mm. But yeah, doesn't seem like a satanic cult who was forcing him to commit these crimes is a thing. Also, I think uh, there was one moment in the documentary that was quite interesting to me, and it was an interview with Charles Manson where he's talking about some of these various cults that are mentioned throughout, so or like sects of various religions. So he mentions Scientology, and he says there's Scientology, and then there was the process, and then there was the children. And like, mm -hmm. I found that interesting because I've never heard or read anything about Manson being anything other than sort of his own crazy thing. Yeah, I'd never heard that either. Because some people, like, some people say the children, this supposed cult was, you know, an offshoot of the process, which was an offshoot of Scientology. Yeah. And others, like, well, it's just that these people, the, the Carr family, were involved in Scientology and supposedly the process. Yeah. And so, allegedly, was Charles Manson. Which, you know, the church then sued. Yes. So, I think ultimately what that says is that. In the 1970s, when all of this sort of counterculture, like radicalized religion and thinking was happening, all of these major players who ended up committing horrific crimes were all involved with all of it. Like, they, they all knew of... Scientology. They all knew of, you know, Al what is it? Aleister Crowley, the the demon sex magic witch guy. Like everyone kind of had a, a, a toe dipped in everything before they came up with their own theologies and their own credos. And which is honestly what we've seen in all of these cults in various ways. We have counterculture was was a big thing then and people had access like okay they don't have the access like we do now with the internet but movement was getting easier things like disposable income was becoming a thing you weren't yeah. literally working to survive people could explore different things yeah and there was this whole movement of people living outside of normal society like yeah. charles manson and his family were living on Spawn Ranch, which was an abandoned movie set. And, like, mm. like they did not participate in the greater society to the same degree that many people did. But then a big part of, of not so much Charles Manson, but this kind of wanting to go off-grid and live outside of society, a big part of that was, like, um, a backlash to the Vietnam War. Yeah, absolutely. And... As we know, that is a thing that nobody really wants to talk about because that involve that implies a fault on the government, yeah, and not like a personality defect of like, oh well, these people just were devil worshippers and lived outside the law. Well, no, some of these people want are like rejecting society because they've been drafted into a war that they really do not agree with. Yeah, or they've come back from a war that's severely 
traumatized and, uh, yeah, them. completely traumatized yeah and and it's caused it caused a massive disillusion with authority with the government with all of these sort of standardized systems that you're supposed to just accept mm. and uh, uh, yeah like there's a reason that they you you know we talk about the radical 70s but yeah so i i think maybe more than anything what this documentary really exposes is that like this is just kind of what was happening in the culture at the time like there were yeah. certain streams of culture and counterculture I, I suppose you could say where people were talking about demons and satan and you know religion and and different ways of thinking and but that doesn't mean that a everyone in those movements were vicious murderers or criminals or whatever and b doesn't mean that the vicious murderers and criminals were representatives of those movements no yes so not a cult but maybe a group of people a small smattering yeah. a few like a couple of accomplices maybe yeah. uh and that's cults month yeah so hope you've enjoyed this past month uh and so for july we have no uh particular no. theme just kind of a random selection of cases we still got some interesting cases lined up. A really uh, quite old historical one relating to mm. uh, uh, the birth of America, if you will. Which is just your mastermind topic, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and and we've got one that has been in the UK press very recently. Yes, yes it has. So, you know, stay tuned for those. Uh, they'll they'll be super fun. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for coming and listening to all the cults. And let us know if you think this was a cult. Yes, please. Uh, if you like the show, this episode, other episodes, what have you, do be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app, uh, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. And send this episode to a friend who you think might like it. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's case or any of the cases we cover. So leave us a comment on social media or send us a message on social media. Or you could even send us an email uh, at info at squaremileofmurder.com. And we'd love to read out some of your thoughts in a future episode. And if you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Uh, tiers start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes one day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. And that's just for £1. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and access to whole bonus episode archive exclusive merch that you can't buy anywhere that we will send you uh, so check that all out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder links are in all the usual places yes so uh with that we bid adieu to to cults for 
a while for everyone's sake, I think. At least a year. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and we will say goodbye to you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.